Welcome to another episode of the Amford Church Sermon Podcast. We're thrilled that you're taking the time to listen to what we have to say about God, the world, and you. These sermons are recorded live during our weekly Sunday morning services. To find out more about us or to plan a visit to join us, check out our website, amfordchurch.com. Again, thanks for listening and enjoy. Yeah, absolutely thrilled. At last, Sammy's taking the pulpit seriously. He's dressing up smart. He's wearing a tie. Well, sorry to disappoint, maybe frustrate you, maybe even anger you, but rather than taking it seriously, this is, this is essentially fancy dress, isn't it? We're supposed to be coming this morning to a wedding all summer. So far, we've been looking at various locations in the Bible, uh, places we could visit, places we could go to. We went to the beach to begin with, the crossing of the Red Sea. We went uh, up a mountain, the covenant, the um, Ten Commandments. Last week we were on holiday thinking about uh, the exile and the theme of exile through the Bible. And this week we are in Cana and at a wedding. So I've dressed up in my wedding suit, which is essentially my funeral suit, but with a waistcoat. So that's how you can tell the difference, okay? Um, I did worry a few people telling me I had a job interview after the service, and that's why I was dressed up, but that isn't true either. Now, weddings are massive events in our culture, aren't they? But they have been big events in cultures around the world um, throughout history, really. And one of the things that, that struck me this week as I was thinking about weddings is how much waiting, how much planning and preparation goes into a wedding. You can imagine it. You've probably experienced it for yourself, for a child of yours, for a close friend or a relative of yours. The big day arrives, and it's like the culmination of months and months of thinking, of planning, of prepping, of hoping, of wanting. And there are a few kind of like key moments in the wedding, aren't there? There are the moments where the bride first comes down the aisle. Like, you could at that moment say, the long wait is now over. After all that thinking, after all those trips down to Ponte de Lice to their various wedding dress shops and things like that to, to pick out wedding dresses and brides, there, she arrives at the front of the church, quarter of an hour late, that's fine, but the long wait is now over. Or you could think a little bit later on in the service, um, I think it's traditional, isn't it, that the person officiating would say something along the lines of, I now pronounce you husband and wife, you may kiss the bride. And everyone gives them a stirring around, way, yay, hurrah. The long wait at last at that point is over. Or one of the things that's become quite popular recently is doing the speeches in the... Oh, if you want to speak about waiting, then let's all just admit it, isn't it, that the worst part of a wedding is waiting for the food in the evening. It never comes in a timely, orderly. It's at like 4.15 and you're supposed to be ready for proper dinner or, or it comes at like 8 o'clock and you haven't had food since you got to the wedding at 12 in the morning. That's, you know, another picture of waiting. Um, but kind of like another culminating point in all of that pomp and ceremony is when the husband usually stands up and says, on behalf of my wife and I, and it's like the first time he will have publicly referred to uh, someone as, as their wife. And it's kind of like that moment that has been building and building for years, if you think about relationships sometimes, for months in terms of planning and prepping, the long wait is finally over. 
And there's been this element of waiting right throughout all of the places we've visited so far this, this summer. There's been um, the waiting, the wanting, the desire, the hoping, the preparing for freedom. As we looked at them on the beach, we, I think John got the kids to roll out their towels. Uh, we were thinking about the Israelites crossing the Red Sea out of Egypt. It was waiting for freedom, wasn't it? It was a people who were enslaved. It was a people who were denied the opportunity to go and to worship the one true God. And crossing the Red Sea for them was like the waiting is over. We're out. We've been set free. Freedom has at last arrived. But as they wandered through the wilderness, there was a sense in which they were waiting for a proper relationship between them and God. You read the Exodus accounts of how long they spend in the wilderness, specifically how long they spend around that mountain. We think of it as like a, um, a one-day event. Moses goes up, he gets the law, God says a few things to him, he comes back down. Maybe you know further parts of the story that would extend it, but essentially we think of it as a nice, fast, quick thing. It's weeks and weeks and weeks of waiting, waiting at the foot of the mountain. And it's waiting for a relationship to be confirmed to be sealed, a bit, bit like a wedding. There's, there's a covenant, there's promises that are made. And at the mountain, that wait is over. Then last week, we were thinking about going on holiday or actually being forced into exile, being away from home, being strangers, foreigners, aliens in someone else's land. And we didn't really get that much of a chance to explore it, but Daniel and his friends and the other people who were forcibly removed from Israel they had that hope, that longing, that waiting to at last finally get home. And they did get home. The exile was just part of their story of waiting to finally be back in the right place. So waiting has been thing, and I want us to have this idea of waiting in our minds, not just in the context of weddings, kind of like being building up to this big event, a big event not just for a couple or, or individuals, but for an entire community, but think of it in terms of waiting and fulfillment in the Bible story. I'm going to read it uh, again. We're in John chapter 2. I just want you to listen to the first time, really, that Jesus is introduced to the world as God amongst us. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples. He had five or six disciples at this point. They'd also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six, six stone water jars, the kind that was used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. That's a lot. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that, they had, turned into, that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside, and he said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till last. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. It's, um, 
It's a bit of a remarkable story. And probably as we go through it, there are elements of it that we think, yeah, that's familiar. I know that. I know Jesus turning water into wine. Yeah, this is great. Um, Jesus, maybe you've heard people speaking about Jesus. The very fact that he's at a party, that he's at a wedding, proves that he's not a killjoy. He's not a sourpuss, but he's someone who loves life and celebrates life. That they'd invited him, that they wanted him to be there. That perhaps you've heard people speaking about the, the very nature of the miracle, that it was wine that he produced. You see, this is an argument and an example. God uh, isn't teetotal. God is fine for us to have alcohol in appropriate measure, in appropriate places, all these sorts of things. And you'll read it and you think, yeah, that's a really familiar passage. But probably as we went through it now twice, there were elements of it that you thought, okay, actually that's, that's a little bit strange, isn't it? How Jesus phrases things, how certain things happen. What exactly is going on? Let's walk through it and just see if we can pull out a few of these points then. My best guess is that this is the wedding of someone who is a close family member or a close friend of the family. Because not only is Jesus there, but Mary, his mother, is there as well. That's, that's specifically stated. And more than that, Mary seems to be involved in what's going on. So when disaster strikes, they run out of wine. And let me just... I've been reading about this this week. It was not unheard of in the first century for people to sue those people getting married if the party wasn't sufficiently good. If the wine ran out too early, if people had taken time off work, had brought their presents and their gifts and had set aside time to be at this wedding to celebrate with them, if the wedding wasn't up to scratch and the wine ran out, it was not unheard of for people to sue and to get... um, reparations for going along to a dud party. So we've got Mary here, and disaster strikes, okay? It's not just a disappointing scenario. It's a scenario that's likely to to cause shame on the family, maybe have financial repercussions for them. And Mary gets involved. So so my best guess is that somehow it's a close friend or a, a close relative. And John... Well, John's gospel, you might know, is, is one which omits the usual nativity story. Uh, when we gather together at Christmas and we think about Jesus as being born, his coming into the world, God made flesh among us, John, John is not one of the ones who, who records things about donkeys and stables and Bethlehem and Egypt and angels. This, if you like, is his first real go at introducing Jesus to his reader, And I love the fact that it is wonderfully mundane. Now, that's not a comment on the decor or the quality of the wedding, but I find it fascinating that Jesus was an invited guest to something so normal. Actually, Jesus has been made kind of publicly known in chapter 1. John the Baptist has been doing what he's been doing and has made this grand statement about Jesus. Here comes the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. A couple of people see Jesus, they trust in him, they believe in him, they want to spread the news. And it's all kind of like spiritual and important. But really, when we first get to see and hear and meet Jesus in John's gospel, it's just doing something that normal people do. It's not baptizing in the Jordan. It's not preaching big sermons. It's not calling people to follow him. Really, we have here such a mundane, everyday, not an everyday occurrence. Let's hope it's you know, the only time in these young people's wives that they get, lives they're getting married. 
But Jesus involved in something just totally and utterly normal. But what happens is this. Mary, who's involved herself or has been involved, sees the problem or is made aware of this problem. What does she do? She turns to Jesus. I love that detail. Naturally, her response to coming up against something that she doesn't know how to deal with is to go and to ask Jesus to sort it out. Now, I've got to ask the question as I'm reading through that. What does she actually expect Jesus to do? Does she expect Jesus to dip into his pocket, to go into town, to order some more wine and get people to cart it to the wedding? Maybe that's what she's expecting. Maybe. But I wonder what has gone... We don't know hardly anything about Jesus' life from his, his birth and his uh, very young early years and times like this when John says he was open, public about who he was. I wonder what went on in their lives that made Mary look to Jesus as the one who would solve all of her problems. Not just her problems, other people's problems. And not just simple problems or, look, there's, um, there's a fuse blown, get Jesus on it. He knows how to sort those things out. He's the handy one. He's the practical one. But problems which, as far as we can tell, are like unsolvable in the moment. She turns to Jesus and she says, um, she just presents the problem with, to him, actually. I wonder what had been going on in their lives, in their relationship, how Jesus had lived, how Jesus had worked in his family to be seen and recognized as the one you brought problems to, the one you expected to be able to solve all of your problems. Um, then comes Jesus' response. And probably this is the thing that stands out at us at A, not being very polite, and B, just not really fitting with the flow of the whole story. He says to her in some of your translations, woman, what's this got to do with me? And we think, well, A, that's not a particularly way polite, a polite way of addressing your mother, is it? You know, in our kind of way of speaking, to call someone a oh, woman, it feels a little bit harsh. And what's this got to do with me? We imagine it's said in that way. Well, just to clarify two things, the NIV that I read from does a good job of bringing this out. It says, dear woman. Uh, there's two times Jesus uses this expression. It's here, and it's when he's on the cross, and he's looking at Mary, and he's saying, Mary... You're not losing a son, you're gaining a son in John. John, please look after my mother. It is a term of endearment. Elsewhere in uh, literature of the time, it's more along the lines of what we would say in our culture as my dearest, my dear, my darling. So he's it doesn't come across, but he's actually showing her love and affection in calling her, quote-unquote, woman. Okay, so maybe just read it as in, oh, my dear, my darling. And then this next section where he says, what's this got to do with me? What have you got to do with, you know, like, he's not saying, you battle axe, stick your nose out of it. You, you've just been invited to the party, stop. It's actually a, a Jewish expression, uh, as in, right, okay, well, what's going to happen next? It's, it's uh, again, a turn of phrase, like a bird in hand is worth two in the bush, you know, to people of different cultures, it would mean nothing to them, but to us, it makes total and utter sense. And here, Jesus is, is basically asking the question like, well, what is going to happen next? My darling, my dear mother, what is going to happen next? And it kind of feels like he's saying, this has got nothing to do with me. 
carry on and sort it out yourself. But actually, if you, if you want to understand what Jesus is saying, just look at how Mary responds. How does Mary respond? She goes to the servants, and she says, whatever he tells you to do, just do it. So, however we hear what Jesus says, Mary has heard it as, yeah, that's been answered. He's going to do something about the problem that I've just let him in on. Whatever he says, do it. Now, again, there's a hint there, isn't there? That what he's about to do is going to be mad. Whatever he's going to tell them to do is going to be crazy. That it's not going to be a sensible suggestion that they're just going to say, okay, that's fine, we'll get on and do it. Mary feels from what she knows of Jesus for however many years they've been living together, what she feels from however she's understood how he's responded, woman, what's this got to do with you? What's this got to do with me? that he's going to say something, he's going to direct them in such a way that they're going to say, uh, no, that's all right, mate. Uh, we'll leave that for now. So she goes along and she tells them, do whatever he says. And what, well, what does he tell them to do? He tells them to fill up these jars with water. And John notes that they fill it to the brim, okay? Whenever you're reading through Scripture, when people put details like that, we should always ask the question why they include the details, especially so with John. If you had the time or the energy or the inclination to kind of look through how John has written his gospel, it's the sort of thing that could have taken 60 years to construct. It's every single word is important and useful. And John says they not only listened to Jesus and filled up these jars with water, but they filled them up to the brim. These are... Without a doubt, jars filled with water and water alone. Now he says to them, he says to them, take some of that water and, and uh, pour it out, fill, fill a glass, fill a, fill a jar like John did down here, and take it to the master of the banquet. Probably not the husband, probably not the father, but someone who has been employed to make sure that everything is going right, that people are seated in the right places and that the food and the drink are coming out at the right time. And give that water that you've just put, you guys have just put into those jars, give that to him, and that's the end of it from Jesus. It's amazing how hands-off he really is. But what happens when that water is delivered and the person in charge, of, the master of ceremonies in charge, drinks the water? Well, they've got absolutely no idea that it ever was water. In their mind, what has just happened is that the servants have had a previous message, a previous plan concocted with the person getting married, that at this point, when disaster strikes and the wine runs out, then we take the cork off the really good stuff then the premier wine comes out because he says the most amazing thing that most people will use the expensive wine to begin with and once most people have had their fill then the cheap nonsense can come out because all you're doing is making sure that you're saving face. But this is what I said. Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine but you have saved the best until now. The best until now. I love it when we're in the scriptures and we find occasions where people are speaking more than they know. This person is definitely only speaking about wine, but as we'll see, I hope, it's really making a grander comment about how God does things in our world and in human history. And then the last thing 
that kind of catches my eye as we're going through it is how John, the person who's writing the gospel, sees it and frames it. We would describe that water into wine as a, anybody? As a miracle, yeah. As something that like defies the laws of science. We don't know how it could happen without some kind of trickery or uh, treachery involved. But John calls it a sign. John says this is a sign that Jesus performed in Cana at Galilee. And it was because of this sign that somehow he revealed, he manifested, he showed his glory, and people were able to see him and put their faith in him. Now, the difference semantically between a sign and a miracle is simply this, that a sign is a miracle that's supposed to point us to see something special about Jesus. We think of other occasions... um, the multiplication of bread, feeding of the 5,000. It is a miracle. It does like baffle our understanding. How could Jesus take a couple of loaves and a couple of fish and feed that many people? But it's a sign when John uses it to kind of tell us, well, Jesus said, I am uh, the bread of life. He's supposed to teach us and show us something about who Jesus is. And again, I think we'll see that in a second now. So what is all of that? got to do with waiting. Jesus coming, performing a miracle, it pointing to something about him, how Mary acts, how people speak during it. What has it all got to do with waiting? How does it fit in with the other ideas of the things that we've been looking at the last couple of weeks? Well, let's ask the question, what have we, literally us here in Llanderbier Memorial Hall, And we collectively, as the human race, and we as in people we meet in the Bible, what have we been waiting for? What have we been waiting for? Could answer everything. Our lives, the scriptures are just a time of waiting, a time of wanting, of needing, of desiring. Even in the stories that we've looked at where the wait is over, we've seen that really the wait isn't over. So, for example, the freedom that Exodus promised out of slavery, out from under the oppressive hand of Pharaoh, and into what? Well, not the freedom perhaps that they wanted, not the freedom that they needed, not the freedom from slavery to our sinful hearts. There were other stories and occasions in the exile is an obvious version of that where literally they were enslaved again. They were overpowered by other people. But the entire story is the story of people who, in the words of Paul, couldn't do the things that they wanted to do and kept on doing the things that they didn't want to do. They weren't free at all. That they were totally and utterly under, under the control of, of sin. What about the nearness that the mountain promised, that relationship that they entered into when they took the commandments, when they said, yes, we'll follow everything you say, you will be our God, we will be your people. Well, they kind of experienced it, but we can't really read that story in any sense of it having been fulfilled properly because they kept on turning the other way. They kept on rejecting God. They kept on rebelling against God. It wasn't the putting right of everything that they might have expected it to be. Certainly, if you get towards the end of your Old Testament, you'll see that even when the exiles came home, 
under people like Ezra and Nehemiah, and they rebuilt everything, they didn't feel at home. I mean, literally, life was still under the oppressive hand of the Romans, wasn't it? That's where we are when we come to the New Testament. But that longing, that yearning, that sense of being home, they're still waiting for it. We're still waiting for it. We explored that last week. So, what has the wedding at Cana got to do with waiting? Well, it's got to do with the end of that waiting. It's got to do with Jesus announcing himself as the fulfillments of all these waitings. Of anything that we could think of to put in there, they are waiting, I am waiting for, Jesus turns up and he says, yes, now things are going to change. Literally, in John's language, in John chapter 1, the waiting has been the waiting for light to come into darkness, for life to come into death. And Jesus' miracle, this sign here, is the loud announcement that I am here to do what I have promised to do. And throughout the Scriptures, God has made multiple promises. I wanted to read from Amos chapter 9. And it's a difficult book to read, but it finishes with this glorious picture of what God is going to do. And see if you get the sense of Jesus coming and turning water into wine and doing that in abundance as being a fulfillment of this promise. This is what God says through the prophet Amos. I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins and will rebuild it as it used to be. Because this is written in a time where they'd come home to Jerusalem, they tried to rebuild everything, but it just looked pants, it just looked rubbish. So that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman, that the planter by the one treading the grapes, that new wine will drip from the mountains and flow from the hills. I will bring my people, Israel, back from exile, even though they are home at this point, and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. They will plant Israel in its own land, never to be uprooted again from the land that I have given them. That is what the Lord your God says. Jesus coming... And the way that John chooses to announce him to the world in this wedding with the water turned into the wine, it's not accidental. It's Jesus standing up publicly and saying, I have finally come. All those things, all those yearnings, all those desires, all those near misses, all those nearlies are going to find their completion in me. Now think specifically about the water and the wine. I said, we kind of look at that and the statement that the person makes about the best followed by the worst, but actually in this case, the best being saved till last. It's important that it's ceremonial washing water that Jesus takes. Now, what do we think of when we read about these giant jars filled with water that are used to wash ceremonially? We should be thinking about the old way of doing things of trying to make ourselves clean, of trying to make ourselves acceptable to God. We should be thinking really about the entire old covenant, uh, the, the way that God was going to take the people and the people were going to remain acceptable to him. 
What I love about the six jars, 30 gallons, filled to the brim with water, needing to be filled up, is that it's a picture to us that that is always going to leave us waiting and wanting more. Every time they came into the house, and so I'm led to believe by my reading this week, between every single course in this wedding, the people were supposed to go and wash their hands and wash their feet and make it so that they were okay and make it so that they were right. And you can just imagine, you can just sense how exhausting that sort of life would be before you could have confidence to get on and do anything having to wash and wash again and having that constant reminder that you, in and of yourself, are not good enough, that you haven't arrived, that you aren't free to live life as you think you can, that you haven't got this perfect relationship with God, that you're not home. You don't have that peace and that contentment, that forgiveness, that relationship perhaps that you desire in your heart. Over and over and over again, this water is to be used in the old scheme of things to cleanse and to make acceptable. Now, Jesus takes that, which is called good in the Bible, how God has worked in human history to order things and to make people right and acceptable before him. And I love how this man speaks more than he knows. He says, what you have brought now is better, Jesus. You turn this thing, this symbol of washing, of having to purify yourself, of effort and striving for God's favor and God's acceptance, and you turn it into what? Wine. Something that's supposed to symbolize joy, celebration, kind of like just the throwing off of all things. Like you can very well imagine it in our culture of kicking off your shoes when you come into the house, that sort of thing, of just being home, of waiting and finally arriving. And just as much as it was a symbol of the water needing to be filled up in vast quantities to be used over and over and over again, We've now got, let me think about this, if it's 20 to 30 gallons times six jars, uh, I've already gone, like over 100 gallons of wine. I don't know how long this party was expected to go on for, but that is too much wine, isn't it? 100 gallons plus of wine. That what Jesus is bringing isn't something that is going to run out. That it isn't something that's going to be partial or kind of like... um, close but no cigar as we've experienced elsewhere where we feel like yes that's satisfied but only to see that we're left wanting here it is jesus announcing himself the fulfillment of the promises and it is something that is joyful it is something that is better than what has gone before and it will not run out and so i want to ask you the question this morning what are you waiting for what do you feel that you're in need of, when you consider your life, when you consider your heart, when you consider your mind and your thinking, what are you overtaken by? What are the things that keep you up at night? What are the things that if they came up in a conversation would make you break out in a cold sweat? We've spoken about one already this morning, health. Some of us will just feel like our bodies are wearing out, wearing down. Or we're terrified that we will at one point feel that way. 
oh, Lord God, I am waiting just for that fear, that anxiety be taken away. Where every uh, pull, every pain, every lump and bump isn't kind of like the starter gun for a panic and a series of appointments with people I do not want to meet. Doctors, nurses, specialists. There are other things in our lives that just cause us fear and anxiety. Relationships. Do I have enough friends? Do I have deep enough friends? Do my family treat me as I think I should be treated? Do I treat them as they should be treated, as I know I should? Am I as loved by that individual as I love them? I mean, just like panic if we stop and we think about it and we explore it. And you are waiting for, at last, something which is solid and that cannot be taken away. What is it for you that you are waiting for? Maybe you're waiting for a point in your life where you feel you are good enough. Good enough for what? I I don't know. I, I don't care. It doesn't really matter. Good enough to stand up in public and hold your head high rather than scurrying off in social situations. Good enough uh, for another individual. Good enough for a certain job. And you're constantly thinking performance, performance, performance. Or you're constantly thinking um, making, paying, paying back debts, like um, transactionally for things that you've done wrong and you feel weighed down, you feel guilty by. And so what you're waiting for is that time and that occasion where at last you feel, right, that's done. That's settled. I'm not down here anymore. I'm up here. Kids, I say kids, I mean teenagers, young adults, you've just been doing exams. And you've had that sense of waiting and waiting and waiting. And perhaps you've had exam results now and either you think that they define you as being someone down here or at last they validated you for being the top brass, the top individual in our society and culture. Only you'll move on And you'll find that kind of that fulfillment doesn't last for very long because you go to university. And trust me, there are way, way cleverer, fitter, funnier, more beardy people there. I know. There are better beards out there. And it hurts. But you realize that. You recognize that. And so your life just becomes one of waiting. When can I really stand up with my head held high and say, yes, this is me. I am happy. I'm content. I'm proud of who I am. What are you waiting for? Well, whatever it is that you're waiting for, Jesus is the answer. And that sounds so, like, simple. And it is. Because Jesus come, and he's come not only as one who can, like, uh, divert disaster at a wedding... Not only one who can open the eyes of blind people. Not only one who can restore health and vigor to uh, a girl who has died. Not only someone who can restore a woman who was bleeding for months and years back to decent society. Not only someone who can say to a leper, yes, you're allowed to live with us again. Not only someone who from uh, the cross as he's being crucified can say, Lord, Father, forgive them, the people who are doing this to me right now for what they're doing. They don't even know the part of what they're involved in. He's the one who who comes and answers everything, fulfills everything. He's the one who comes to give us hope that these bodies, which are decaying, though good, aren't the best bodies that we'll ever live in. That we have got this hope of a glorious, physical, 
full of vitality, future, and life. A better, healthier life. And I'm not saying health, wealth, and prosperity style. I mean, like, this is what Jesus says he's come to make for us. A new flesh for us to live in. Acceptance. Jesus comes and he says, do you know what? You will always let God down. Every time you go to that jar to wash yourself, to make yourself clean and presentable, you'll do something, an occasion will occur where you'll just have to go and keep on going. And at some point, you'll think that the well has run dry and that there is no hope for you. Jesus comes and he says, do you know what? No, an end to that, come to me. I will make you whole. I will make you perfect. I will make you beautiful and glorious. I will make it so that when God the Father looks at you, he sees my, Jesus Christ's glorious perfection, that he will call you son or daughter, just as the Father eternally has looked at and called and loved the Son. If you're worried about being found out or or paying back your debt, you'll realize it's it's a mountain that you cannot climb. And Jesus comes and he says, yes, I've paid it all. Like literally one of the things that Jesus says is, it is finished, paid in full. That is gone, that could be done away with. Whatever you are waiting for, Jesus is the promise, Jesus is the answer. When John opens up his gospel and he's doing it in like big philosophical terms, the world is dark and it needs light to come into it. Only people reject light and they don't know it and they prefer living in darkness. Jesus comes and says, yeah, do you know what the answer to that? That's me as well. This dark, sad, decaying, depressing world, dangerous world, dirty world. I've come to make it wonderful and clean and filled with light and as it was supposed to be. Right all the way back to the start of the Bible, the Bible story of Adam and Eve kicked out of the garden. We considered this last week, didn't we? How they had to live their lives in exile away from home, waiting to be allowed to go back into the presence of God, to the perfection, the paradise of God. Jesus Jesus is the one who says, yeah, that's done. That's done because of me. Whatever it is that you're waiting for, Jesus is the answer. He's the fulfillment of that promise. Now, here's the next challenge. What, What are you waiting for? As in, not what is that, question mark, what is your want, what is your desire, what is your hope, what is your need? Why aren't you going to Jesus for it? What is holding you back? We had an experience this week, Charlotte and I. We went out for dinner, and we sat down, and we decided quite quickly, because we were hungry, what we wanted to eat. We decided what we wanted to drink, and then we waited, and we waited, and we waited. Now, it was about 15 minutes, probably. Last week, we went out for dinner, and having decided before we went and ordered... Before we went, we had to wait just over two hours for our food, but that's a different story. No, this week on Wednesday evening, we were out for dinner, and we decided, and after 15 minutes, I thought, I have had enough. So I caught the eye of the young gentleman who was supposed to be serving us on the table, and I waved my menu at him like this. I'm not waiting two hours again. Come and take my order. And he came up to me, and he said, oh, you're supposed to go and order at the till and give them your your, your table number. And he, like, the question I could ask myself then was, well, what were we waiting for? What were we waiting for? We decided the mechanism was in place. Perhaps they could have made us aware of how that worked before we went in, but that's a different discussion. I was waiting, and I didn't need to be waiting. 
And I guess that's what I'm saying to you this morning is whatever it is that you're waiting for, why are you waiting for it? Because you do not need to be waiting anymore. Jesus has arrived. This declaration, this announcement that happens at this wedding, which is a bit nasty, isn't it? Stealing the thunder from the bride and the groom. It's their big day, but that's another discussion. Um, Even in that, Jesus is looking forward to a time when he would just answer all of the problems. He said to his mother, my hour has not yet come. As if, yeah, I'll do this, and it will be a sign, and it will point to truth about me. But something else is going to happen that is really going to be the big answer, the big reveal. And what was that? It's his sentencing to death. It's his being executed. It's his rising to life again. And if you want to include it, his ascending to heaven. For Mary, it was a little bit like, oh, there's a bit more time to come now. But for us, we are 2,000 years down the line. You don't need to wait for this anymore. There is freedom to be found. We could say that to the Israelites coming out of Egypt, but it is found not by crossing the sea. It is found in Jesus. There is acceptance to be found right now. And it's not at the foot of a mountain. It's at the foot of the cross in Jesus. There is forgiveness to be found for all those people who in judgment have been kicked out of their homes. There's forgiveness to be found. And it's right now in Jesus. There is life, says John. There is light to be found. And it's right now. In Jesus, so what are you waiting for? You don't need to sort things out. This is how we like to live our lives, isn't it? It's to get our affairs in order, to, to have a destination, have a goal in mind, and to, and to kind of plan through and think through the steps. Maybe do a little, okay, I say this is how we live. This is maybe just me. I like watching little YouTube videos, how to, to think things over. Isn't there a famous joke like... Um, When men say they're going to do something, women, you can trust them that they're going to do it. You don't need to remind them every six months. Just trust them. Like, we like planning and thinking and putting things off into the future. Yes, one day. When this happens, when that happens. The time is now. Jesus gave this couple wine at their wedding. It's not the only time we see wine with Jesus, is it? At the Last Supper, he takes a cup of wine and he says this is for you think about my blood which i am pouring out it is for you you can have it you can take it you can be changed by it you don't need to find the right words you don't need to wait just a little bit longer you don't need to prove yourself as worthy of as one who needs who can be forgiven and accepted by jesus you just need to come So I would ask you to finish, what are you waiting for? Whatever it is, Jesus is the answer. And therefore, I would ask you one more time, what are you waiting for? What's stopping you? Nothing. Come to him. I'm going to pray and we'll sing. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you for Jesus' coming. Lord, we know that people had to wait so long, that there were promises made again and again and again, that there were generations There were civilizations which rose up and fell apart as people waited for Jesus to come. Lord, I thank you so much that we live on this side, that we live on this side of his coming, his announcing, his demonstrating who he is, him doing what he has done, Lord, to answer all of our problems.
Lord, to, to deal with all of our issues. And that He's come in such a way that He is one who gives, gives a joyful gift, who replaces what has gone before with something even better. And I pray, Lord, this morning, wherever people are, whatever it is that is holding them back from coming to Jesus, you would take that away, that you would help us to see that you have come, you have lived, you have died, you have risen again. And we can find all those things, hope, peace, uh, forgiveness, restoration, acceptance, all these things, security, joy in Jesus. Help us to come and help us to recognize that he is the one that we need. Amen. hope that you found today's message useful and challenging and we want to take a moment to offer you some next steps that you can take right now why not get in touch with us via email at contact at amfordchurch.com if you have any follow-up questions or things that you'd like to discuss if you want to know more about what's going on at Amford Church make sure to like us on Facebook and lastly check out our YouTube channel for video teaching in addition to our sermon podcasts Thanks for listening.